Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And we're in this series of ongoing expositions uh, through the opening chapters of Genesis. We're continuing that today in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 26. Genesis 4, verses 16 through 26. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand together in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Genesis 4, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, wherein Moses faithfully records, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begat Mehu-Jael, and Mehu-Jael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, and the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. May God bless today once again the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for the opportunity once again to hear thy word read, to stand under its teaching. We ask that you would give us today the light of illumination, that you would uh, enlighten our minds and the knowledge of the truth, that you would unstop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts to receive, value, cherish, heed thy word. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, when we were in Genesis 3 and we were looking at the fall of man into sin, we gave much attention to Genesis 3.15. And the description there of the curse that was laid upon the serpent and the description that was placed there 
of the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we saw there what we called the first proclamation of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelion. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so we, we saw in that teaching that there was a brewing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And of course, this is not just the, the creature of the serpent, but it's the, the figure of Satan behind who used the serpent in order to deceive and tempt uh, the first man and woman and have them fall into sin. And so there's this uh, competing conflict, interest, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that is played out really in the rest of Scripture. I think I, I read one commentator who said that really the rest of Scripture after Genesis 3.15 is simply a commentary upon it as there's the unfolding of this and this ongoing conflict that will end with the triumph of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent, even in the triumph of Christ over sin, death, and the devil on the cross. And so it's this, it's this conflict, this ancient conflict between good and evil, light and dark, between wickedness and righteousness. And what we saw one of the first manifestations of this, did we not, of this enmity in the opening portion of Genesis 4, as Cain had sin crouching outside, lurking outside and and Cain was led to rise up and to slay his brother righteous Abel who was sort of a type really of Christ a righteous man a godly servant who was slain out of enmity and then we saw uh, also how there was the spiritual explanation of this I was really struck by, I stressed it and been lingering to think about it, how there are passages in the New Testament, a few trace mentions of Cain and Abel that really unlock, I think, how we should understand Genesis 4. And one of those is in 1 John 3.12, where the Apostle John says that Cain was of that wicked one. And, and so he had fallen into sin, he was really part of the seed of a serpent. He was of that wicked one, whereas Abel was of the seed of the woman, a righteous man. And so there were the consequences for sin that came upon Cain, if we could rehearse for just a few moments what we looked at last Lord's Day. Remember how the Lord came unto Cain and said unto him in verse 10, what hast thou done? And I suggested that's always God's question when he finds us out in our sin. What hast thou done? And then there were the consequences. As in Genesis 3, there was a curse upon the serpent and a curse upon the ground. There was a curse that came upon Cain in verse 11. As the Lord said unto him, And now art thou cursed from the earth. And, and then Cain, remember, had cried out under uh, the, the receiving these consequences unto himself in verse 13 he said as we sometimes do 
as we suffer under the consequences of our own sin, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see the the unfolding of this further, that because of his sin, because of his breaking the second, second table of the law and slaying his brother, that, that Cain was, was forced uh, out, further out, and he was, he was told that, that God's face would be hid from him in verse 14. He was told that he would be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And uh, he, remember, was fearful of death. His greatest uh, fear was not that he had trespassed against the command of God, but his greatest fear uh, was that men would take his life. And he was fearful, I suggested last time, that his own parents would rise up and take his life as an act of vengeance against him. And why was he so fearful of death? Maybe he feared the violence of death. We're not told how he killed his brother Abel, but maybe in using violence, he saw how Abel had suffered. He was fearful of having that come upon himself. Maybe he was simply afraid of the the unknownness of death. Or perhaps he feared having in the end to stand before God as a righteous judge. And many people today are fearful of death. They're fearful that they might die a violent death. They're, They're fearful of death because it seems like something that's completely unknown. And I think in the back of their consciences, they're also afraid that they will have to stand in the end before a holy God and righteous God who will evaluate their lives. And so we see this already in this early and ancient man and in his experience. And you remember in verse 15, at the end of our passage last time, that the Lord gave unto Cain really two gracious signs. Even in his sinful state, the Lord extended to some degree mercy unto Cain and compassion upon him. The first thing that he did for him was that the the Lord declared that there would be a sevenfold or a perfect vengeance upon any man who took Cain's life. And then secondly, he placed upon him a mark. It says at the end of verse 15, and the Lord set a mark upon Cain. We don't know what that was. We don't know what that that indication was. Uh, It's never explained to us, but there was some mark upon Cain uh, so that, that, that his life would not be taken by his own parents, or even by later uh, children that would be born to Adam and Eve. And so now we take things up here in verse 16, and the rest of our passage falls into two parts. The first part is verses 16 through 24, And it lays out for us what we could call the line or the descent that will come from Cain. And then secondly, the last two verses, much shorter, verses 25 and 26, we are told about a new line, a new line of descent that will come from a new son who will be born to Adam and Eve, whose name is Seth. And so... Uh, again, the remainder of this uh, chapter is simply the, the laying out of these two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. 
And really, what we see here is the continuation of this enmity between the two seed. Because the, the line of Cain will represent the, the, the line of the serpent, fallen man. Whereas the line of Seth will represent the line of the godly, the righteous, and the redeemed. Um, I had heard years ago uh, that there is a very small micro-denomination of primitive Baptists. I don't know if you've ever heard of primitive Baptists. It doesn't mean that they eat their food with their hands, but uh, they, they, they believe they hold to primitive New Testament beliefs. And um, way back in the 19th century, they were known as being anti-missions and sort of almost hyper-Calvinistic. Uh, sometimes people are accused of that when they're not, but I, I think maybe that there was a genuineness perhaps of that charge in that they, they did not uh, think they needed to do evangelism because they thought that, that God was sovereign in election. But there's a very small group of these Baptists, and they took the name for their little micro-denomination as Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptists. And they took the na their name from largely from this teaching. You can look them up on Wikipedia. According to the most recent entry, there are only about five, church, five, five of these churches in this denomination. But two seed in the spirit, predestinarian Baptists. Well, we might not place the same weight on this passage as they do, but we do see in this passage the teaching of two ways or two paths among men. One way leads to worldliness. It leads to indifference to spiritual things. And one way will lead to worship. It will be from the line of Seth that we will read in the end in verse 26, the very last words of chapter 4, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we will need to ask by the end of this meditation upon this passage, to which line do we belong? To which line have we joined ourselves? Are we in the line of Cain or are we in the line of Seth? And so uh, we will see the genesis of worship. We might see, say it that way when we come to the end of this chapter. Well, let's turn now. And let's walk through our two parts of our passage. And we're going to begin, as I said, with the first part, which is the line of Cain, which is in verses 16 through 24. We read in verse uh, 16 this opening. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The, the word nod in Hebrew means wandering. And it is related to the term that was used previously in the passage, starting in verse 12 and also in verse 14, that said that part of the curse upon Cain was that he was to be, as it puts it in verse 12, a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And those two terms are repeated uh, in verse 14, as Cain himself had articulated, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And that word that's rendered in the authorized version as vagabond has uh, as part of its etymological root 
this word nod. And so he was sent from the orderly, further away from the orderly garden of Eden from which Adam and Eve had already been expelled. He was, he was sent into the land of wondering, the land of, of things where things aren't clear, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. It'll later be said in the book of Judges. So it's a land of meandering, a land of, of wondering, a land of gray rather than a, 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 a land of black and white. And so Moses also tells us that this land of Nod was to the east of Eden. And you'll remember back in chapter 3 and verse 24 that when Adam and Eve were thrust out of the Garden of Eden and the cherubims were placed there to keep them out, the flaming sword turning every way, uh, that it says in particular that when they were, that they were expelled, they were sent toward the east. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden. And now we, we have Cain being thrust even further out. And it's also interesting that in the history of Israel, when they are sent in later years into exile, it will be in the east. It will be in Babylon. And so there's a, a geographical, spiritual reality here that the further east they go, the further they were going from God's will. We're told uh, next in verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. And uh, this, this language of knowledge, we talked about this last week because you remember in chapter 4, verse 1, it said, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. This word knowledge doesn't mean factual knowledge. It means intimacy. And so what we're told is that really this is a sign of mercy too, that Cain was provided a, a partner even in his sinful state, even the terrible things that he had done. He, he had a wife and he still had the generative capacity. And this passage, though, has caused uh, a great deal of questioning over the years. Sometimes the skeptic will say, well, where did Cain get his wife from? Have you ever thought about that or had that question posed to you? Here's an answer that comes from a Reformed Old Testament scholar named John Currid. He wrote uh, the following. He said, the only possible explanation is that she is a daughter of Adam and Eve. And so he quotes as a proof text here, chapter 5 and verse 4, which says at the end that, that Adam and Eve begat sons and daughters. And so he, uh, Kurt says, this is the only explanation. He proceeds to say the marriage of brothers and sisters is inevitable if the human race is descended from a single pair. And we believe in the literal nature, the historical account. And so we know that there was in the beginning one man and one woman. Interestingly enough, I think even the, the, those who study genetics will say that you can trace the the genetic history of humanity to a single man and a single woman in the very beginning. And so uh, there was a necessity at the very beginning. But, Kurd says, when such a necessity no longer exists, the practice is forbidden by the specific command of God. And so you can take the book of Leviticus 
And you can look at Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 9. You'll see there that the Lord will forbid uh, such unions uh, and that he will, he will provide for this law for mankind, even though in these early days with the establishment of humanity before their flourishing, this apparently was permitted. We're reminded that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign even over his moral law. Uh, later, we'll see that he'll take the fourth commandment and change it from being a seventh-day observance to being a first-day observance. And so the Lord is sovereign over these things. Cain and his wife bear a son. And we, we read of this, again, going back to verse 17, it says, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And so she, she had a son. The name Enoch means dedication or consecration. And then we also read in verse 17 that uh, he, referring back to Cain, builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, uh, Enoch. And so he creates uh, Enoch Town or Enochville or Enoch uh, a City. And it's interesting as we contemplate this, some interpreters have pointed out that this indicates the fact that Cain was bucking against the command of God because God's command was that he was to be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth. And he goes out and attempts to build himself a city. And I have heard some people suggest that this points to and indicates the fact, and I've heard some people trace this all, all through the Bible, that that basically cities are depicted throughout the Bible as being evil, as, as places where people congregate and where it's, it's sometimes easier to do wicked things and have some sense of anonymity about it. And those same persons say, but in the end, God provides for a, a holy city, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. Well, again, he names this city after his son. One interpreter that I read made a very interesting point. He said that as you read through Genesis, you'll find that godly men and righteous men uh, rarely, if ever, name a place after themselves or after their posterity, but they typically give spiritual names to places. And this person listed a couple of examples uh, if you look ahead for just a second to Genesis 22, chapter 22 and verse 14, it says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day. And so he, when, he, when, when godly Abraham names a place, he names it the Lord is provided. And so this is typical. He gave other examples, Genesis 28, 19, Genesis 32, verse 30. Uh, 32 uh, verse 2 and there we think of Jacob naming a place Bethel the house of God and he points out though that that when you see ungodly men that sometimes they have a tendency to name things after themselves or after their children and this commentator concluded the priority of the godly line is always the Lord 
not self-glorification. So there are these, I think, tiny clues, even in this sort of, it seems like a very pedantic description, a, a very, uh, a list. You say, what's a, are you, am I reading too much into it? I don't think so. I think there are meant to be spiritual gleanings that we can take uh, even, uh, even out of such a list uh, as, as this. And then in verse 18, we hear the extension further uh, of the line of Cain. As uh, it says, and unto Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begat Mehu-Jael, and Mehu-Jael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And so the line continues. There's not much said about these men, uh, but some have suggested that some things can be learned from their names. The name Irad, some have suggested, means something like flight. Uh, one interpreter I read said it could be related to the, world, the word for a wild donkey. And so maybe it says something about the character of this, of this uh, man born from the line of Cain. Mehu Jael, some take it to mean a manifestation of God. Others, however, take it to mean smitten of God or the grief of God, one who grieves God. Mehu Jael, one explanation of this has been that it it's, could be described as meaning man of the weapon. And then Lamech, we'll, we'll nest here upon Lamech, the last in this line. This name has been interpreted as meaning both strong and low. And indeed, Lamech was a combination of both of these things. He was a strong man. We'll see he's a man of violence. He was a murderer like his forebear, Cain, but... And then alongside of that, he was, he was low, maybe low in, in morals, low in ethics, and so forth. With Lamech, now we come to the seventh generation listed from Adam uh, to Lamech. And what we get from this list of these men in the line of Cain is a sense of what we could call an ever-spiraling descent and what is the first thing we learn about Lamech? Look at verse 19. And Lamech took unto him two wives. So he was the first person described in the scriptures as practicing polygamy. And of course, this is the first direct citation we have of a violation of the pattern that was established in the pre-fallen world. Because remember, in Genesis 2.24, God had given man to woman and had declared through his word that a man was to leave his father's house and cleave to his wife, and they too would become one flesh. Not they three, not they four, but a man and a woman would be joined together in the marriage union. And now we see uh, Lamech, disobeying God's word, disobeying God's good design. Polygamy only occurs in a fallen world. Sometimes people, people will say, oh, there's polygamy in the Old Testament. Yes, there's also murder, and there's rape, and there's pillaging, and there's lying. These thing, things that are described are not described 
as things that you should aspire to, but often they're described as things that are signs of sin, signs of fallenness, signs of depravity. And the wonder is that God is so gracious in not immediately uh, bringing down all the weight of, of his judgment upon these things. Polygamy is never described positively in the Old Testament. It's never described as bringing peace and contentment, but actually, it's, every time it's described, it always brings about the exact opposite. Think about Abraham when he took to himself his wife Sarah and also Hagar, and there was great enmity that developed between them. The names of the women in verse 19, these wives, is perhaps uh, suggestive. The name uh, Ada, the first woman who is mentioned, this name, it is thought, is related to the, the word meaning adornment. Whereas Zillah is thought to be related to a word that means tinkling, maybe something like the tinkling of an elaborate uh, earring or an elaborate pendant. And one might, I think, rightly draw the conclusion that Lamech took these women because they were to be trophy wives. They were to be eye candy. And he wanted to have these women because of their beauty. Currid says, scholar says, to practice polygamy is to live for the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. It is to live by sight and not by faith. And then we have described for us the continuation of the line of Cain through Lamech and through these two women. First of all, in verses 20 and 21, there's a, there's a description of uh, the, the, the sons who were born to Ada. And then in verse 22, of a son and daughter born to Zillah. Let's look first at the description of the offspring that came through the union of, of Lamech and Ada. And it says, first of all, in verse 20, that she bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And then after him, in verse 21, he had a brother. His name was Jubal. And he was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. In other words, he was the father of music and of musicians. And then from Zillah in verse 22, we're told that she had a son who was named Tubal-Cain. And some render this name as meaning Cain's spices. And he is described here as an instructor of every, art, uh, I, I want to say artificer, but actually someone in the conference read a passage in Second Chronicles and they pronounced it as artificer. And they said they had looked it up, and that's the way it was supposed to be pronounced, and so I'll go along with that. And every artificer in brass and iron. And so it's interesting, Tubal Cain was apparently one who was like an artisan, one who worked with metal, perhaps to make household items. Perhaps he was an artist. Or perhaps he was an arms manufacturer. Maybe he used his skill to make weapons of war. And then also uh, from the union of Lamech and Zillah, there came a sister. There's not much description of her, simply her name, Naamah. And this, this name apparently means lovely. And so at least one commentator said 
this too may reflect the worldly mindedness of the Canaanites. Let's pause for a moment. Is there something inherently evil about living in tents, keeping cattle, making music, um, knowing how to weld, uh, put together jewelry? Is, is there something inherently evil about that? And I don't think that's the, the point here. There's nothing wrong with raising cattle. There's nothing wrong with making music. Uh, you, can, you can make music to praise God. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a skilled artisan. In fact, there's a lot that's very commendable about if you're, if you're an artisan, whatever you do, as Solomon said, whatever you do, do it with all your might. Do it well. Do it with excellence to the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is not that. The problem is there's no mention in here of any spiritual life of these men. There's mention of their work, but not of their worship. There's more than a little hint here in this listing of the descendants of Cain, especially of Lamech, of what we would today call secularism. There are many worldly people out there who are really good at raising livestock. They're really good at making music. They're really good at creating art. But as Christ will say in Mark 8, verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry observed on this passage, he wrote, that worldly things are the only things that carnal wicked people set their hearts upon and are most ingenious and industrious about. So it was with the impious race of cursed Cain. He was a father of shepherds and of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices how to be rich, and how to be mighty, and how to be merry, but nothing of God. Well, later on, the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnational ministry would teach things like this in Matthew 6, verses 19 and following. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, the line of Cain, they were good at laying up treasure on earth. There's not a single mention of their spiritual life, of laying up treasures in heaven. We might also lay alongside of this uh, Christ's teaching in Luke chapter 12 about a parable of a rich man whose fields increased. I like to call it the parable of the barn builder. You know, Christ uh, taught this parable and we're told in Luke 
chapter 12 and verse 15, that he taught it so that men would take heed and beware of covetousness. For he said, continued to say in verse 15, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And Christ tells about this man who built bigger barns and bigger barns. He needed bigger sheds to hold his things and he needed a bigger basement to hold all the things he had. Uh, he just, he had more and more things and he, and, and he was content. He said, oh, now I finally got everything. And then what happened? The Lord required of him in that night his soul. And the Lord had said, said to him in verse 20 of Luke 12, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Did you ever think about that? Many of the things that we treasure the most will one day end up at goodwill. That's how important they are. They'll be sold in a jumble sale somewhere, in a yard sale. So where do you, where do you, where do you put the focus of your life? Well, the, the account of, going back to Genesis 4, the account of Cain's line ends in verses 23 and 24. And it ends with a speech, we're told, that... Lamech makes to his wives. Hear my voice, verse 23, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And so uh, one commentator described the speech as a eulogy or a praise that he gives of his great violence. And this commentator further described this as an arrogant boast of the seed of the serpent. What we find here is that the apple has not fallen far from the tree of Cain. Cain had been a murderer. And now the seventh in line from him, Lamech, his descendant, succumbs to the same sinful action. But Lamech apparently had no shame about the fact that he had killed a man, even a young man. And he even seems to boast about what he has done. And what we see, remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned, what did they do? They tried to hide themselves. They tried to cover their nakedness. What does Lamech do? He drops a song about it. He posts a picture of it on social media. He boasts about his wickedness. And what we're seeing is that as generations pass, men, sinful men on this spiral of descent feel no need to hide their nakedness. But they flaunt it openly. That's what Lamech is doing. Sound like something contemporary? The end in verse 24 is a kind of a grotesque play upon, I think, the provision the Lord had made for Cain back in verse 15. Remember? God said anybody who strikes down Cain is going to get a sevenfold vengeance, a perfect vengeance. Now Lamech seems to be 
boasting something like this. If anyone messes with me, I'll pay him back not seven times, but 70 times, 77 times. One commentator said, Lamech is a man of fierce and cruel disposition. He gives no mercy or forgiveness. He will destroy all that get in his way. And he composes a poem that glorifies his serpent-like manner. The boast of repaying 77 times anyone who slights him brings to mind a teaching from Christ. When you hear 77 times, what might come to your mind? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, when Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times do I have to forgive a brother who sins against me? Peter was very magnanimous. Up to seven times. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? Then the eighth time, forget it. I can go all Lamech on him. And what did Christ say? To Peter, he said, I say unto thee, not seven times, but until 70 times seven. And some translate us that as 77 times. This is almost the exact reversal in the words of Christ of the attitude of Lamech. Lamech asked himself, how many times will I avenge myself on my enemy and he answered, not seven times, but 77 times. But Christ said, how many times will I forgive someone who sins against me? Not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. You see, Christ was, in Matthew 18, in that teaching to Peter, he was doing what he did throughout his whole ministry. He was unraveling the curse of Cain. And he was unraveling the sin of Lamech by forgiving men rather than retaliating in violence against them. Remember what he taught in Matthew 6 just after he had taught the model prayer to his disciples? Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And do you remember what our Lord said on the cross when he was being crucified in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One commentator said, whereas the seed of the serpent professes unlimited revenge, retaliation, and selfishness, the seed of the woman is to champion unlimited forgiveness and mercy. Let's move in the last bit of time we have to look at our, the second part of our passage. We've looked at the line of Cain. Let's look at the line of Seth in verses 25 and 26. After the account of the line of Cain, who was of the wicked one comes the line of a new seed, a new son. 
We read in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again. Just as in chapter 4, verse 1, he knew his wife conceived, conceiving Cain and Abel. Now he knows his wife again. And then we read in verse 25, And she bare a son and called his name Seth. The name Seth means appointed. And so Moses continues to explain the significance of this name. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Wonderful thing about the authorized version, I was talking about this in the conference this weekend, is its use of italics. And it uses italics to supply words that aren't in the original Hebrew or Greek. Um, and in this verse, the said she is, is supplied. The interpreters are telling us that they think that this was said by Eve, although it's not explicitly said in the passage, it makes sense. That God had looked with mercy upon Adam and Eve, having lost a son, Abel, a righteous son, and gave to them, appointed for them another son. And the woman was especially giving, <coughs> acknowledging that. Seth was uh, to heal the hurting heart of a mother and father who were grieving the loss of a godly son. But most importantly, what's being communicated here is that the promises of God made in Genesis 3.15 will not fall to the ground. That there will continue from the seed of, of the woman a righteous line. A righteous line. It could have ended right there with the death of Abel. But God had appointed for it to continue, and it will continue through the line of Seth. And then we learn in verse 26 that the same generative powers that allowed Adam and Eve to conceive would also continue to Seth. As he has a son, it says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos or Enosh. And the name Enos or Enosh apparently means in the Hebrew weak one or faint one. It's kind of a strange name to call your son, right? Come on, winkling, weakling or runt or whatever it might be. But some of the interpreters point out that the significance of this may be simply describing the moral physical and spiritual weakness and frailty of mankind now in the fallen state without saying anything in particular about any weakness in Seth but just a reminder of the compromised state of humanity now in its fallen condition but also it's pointed out that this name stands as a contrast to the boastful names that were given to the offspring in the line of Cain you see, those in the line of Seth have humility. They don't need to boast in themselves. They don't need to make a name for themselves. When we are weak, God is strong. In the line of Seth, there is humility, lowliness of heart. One commentator wrote, The birth of Seth underscores the great distinction between the character of the godly line of the woman and the descent of the serpent. 
One serves God, the other serves self. One instills godliness in children, the other teaches greed and selfishness. One lives with the eye of faith, the other with the eyes of the flesh. And then the whole passage in the account of the line of Seth ends with these words in verse 26. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. See, there had been no mention of spiritual life in the line of Cain. But in the line of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The traditional view of this passage has been that it was through the line of Seth in the time of Enosh that corporate worship of God was established. God began to be praised among men. God began to be prayed unto. And notice they called upon God by his revealed name. Jehovah, I am that I am, the Lord, written here in this translation, all capital letters. Calvin says, yea, this is the spiritual worship of God which faith produces. And Calvin added this, there is no doubt that Adam and Eve, with a few of their children, were true worshipers of God. We may readily conclude that Seth was an upright man and faithful servant of God, and after he begat a son like himself and had a rightly constituted family, the face of the church began distinctly to appear and that worship of God was set up which might continue to posterity. See, we're continuing what was described here in Genesis 4:26, as we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day to call upon the name of the Lord in worship. Calvin adds that Moses relates this was a miracle, that there was at that time a single family in which the worship of God arose. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage. Let me see if I can hasten here to just add a few reflective points at the end, and hopefully already you have thought of some that you can apply to yourself. Well, we're left here, maybe not like the two seed in the spirit predestinarian Baptists, but to see an account of two ways, two lines. I thought about what Christ taught also in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The way of Cain is the broad way, but it leads to destruction. The way of Seth is the narrow way, but it leads to life. Are we part of the line of Cain or the line of Seth? Will we build our city? our empire, trying to make a name for ourselves or leave a legacy for ourselves? Will we cast aside the, the original good design of God and did as Lamech did and take multiple wives? Will we lead a life with only secular strivings? Even if we do become very skilled at amassing cattle, making music, or becoming a skilled artisan, 
but doing it all apart from any recognition of or relationship with Christ? Will we only be able, those of us who are parents, to give our children a material inheritance when we leave this earth? Or will we leave them something more? Will we live to have men fear us? Vowing to pay back the slightest injury with 77 times the force, breathing out threats and boasting, mess with the best and get burned like the rest? Or will we go the way of Seth and be weak and humble before the Lord, asking him to remember that we are but dust? Will we seek the worship of God as the true end of man? And will we pass this truth on to our children and if God allows to our grandchildren? Will we join with those who call upon the name of the Lord? What a painful thing it was that Cain took the life of his brother. It threatened the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15. But what men and the devil meant for evil, God, as always, turns to good. And he calls men to call upon his name. And you know what else was at work there in the line of Seth? You know who was waiting beyond Seth and Enosh? Just look over last. This is the last thing we'll look at. Look over at Luke chapter 3. It's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. It begins in verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And then it gives a line of, of Jesus tracing his line. And then look at verse 38. Which was the son of Enosh? Which was the son of Seth? Which was the son of Adam? Which was the son of God? Who's going to come out of the line of Seth? The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will crush the skull of a serpent. God is working out his plan for his glory and for man's good even if we can't see right now where it's going to end. He's working all things together for good. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for this ancient account of what was transpiring, this spiral that we're still seeing all around us and we've been part of ourselves through the remaining corruptions within us. But we also see the hope that is coming. You have not forgotten your people, but you have worked out a way, a plan of salvation through Christ it has been fulfilled, it is finished. And we long for that day when he will come in power and glory. Uphold us by thy grace till then. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.